This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. In the market for small business insurance, State Farm agents can help you create a personalized plan that fits your business needs and budget. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It's State of Ukraine from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil with NPR's best reporting on a war that's changing the world. Russia's feeling the bite of sanctions. It recently tried to pay its foreign debt in rubles, not in dollars like it's supposed to do. Russia blamed it on banking restrictions imposed by the U.S. and its allies. If it doesn't make the payments in dollars in about 30 days, it will default. That's something that hasn't happened since the Russian Revolution more than a century ago. Sanctions and trade restrictions have isolated Russia, but a default would make it even more of a pariah, and it could have lasting effects on the country's economy. David Gura talked with Elsa Chang about what it means. So can you just explain for us, like, how did Russia get to this point where it's on the edge of default? Well, a lot has happened over the last week. Russia faced a deadline to make interest payments to foreign investors on two bonds to the tune of almost $650 million. Now, those payments had to be made in dollars, but Russia said that because of restrictions the U.S. and its allies have put in place, doing that, paying in U.S. currency would be impossible. So Russia used rubles, and that is not allowed. These bonds are denominated in dollars, and the contracts require Russia to make these payments In dollars. Shortly after this happened, the ratings agency S&P Global said Russia is in what's called a selective default. This is often a preliminary step before a full default. Russia has a little breathing room here, a 30-day grace period, but the clock is already ticking on that. And if the country doesn't make these payments in dollars by early May, Elsa, Russia will effectively default. And what would be the effects of that if Russia defaults? You know, a default would isolate Russia even more from the global economy at a time when it's facing widening sanctions and dwindling reserves. Access to capital markets is crucial to countries that need to borrow to pay for all kinds of projects and programs. And while Russia's debt load is fairly small relative to the size of its economy, a default would compound a situation that's gotten worse and worse. So much of Russia's foreign exchange reserves come from selling energy. And now the European Union is considering a ban on energy exports from Russia – A default is also something that would be historically significant and fraught with symbolism. Tim Samples is a professor at the University of Georgia who specializes in foreign investment. This is a reflection of just how far and how fast Russia has fallen from favor in Western capital markets. Now, countries have defaulted and eventually they've been welcomed back to the debt markets, but memories of a default tend to linger and in the future Russia may have to pay more to borrow. And I mean... David, can Russia even make these payments that it owes? This is a good question and a tricky question. I mean, the the U.S. is making it as difficult as possible. Uh, The U.S. and its allies have frozen most of Russia's foreign currency reserves. They've placed restrictions on financial institutions. Odette Linau is a sovereign debt expert at Cornell Law School. There has been a shift in the policy, and so there is a lack of a technical capacity to actually make these payments. But it's not impossible. I mean, Russia does have dollars elsewhere. It could get more dollars selling energy. And although many banks are barred from doing business with Russia, there are non-sanctioned banks with which it could work. Well, what about foreign investors? Like, are they going to be losing money? Yeah, when we say foreign investors, we're talking about hedge funds and emerging markets funds run by asset managers like Invesco and PIMCO, along with some individual investors. 
Sovereign debt experts told me that if investors didn't sell these bonds in the early days of the war, there's not much more they can do than wait. But right now, all signs point to a default. And if that happens, what we can expect is a significant protracted legal battle over these payments. A strange wrinkle here is that Russia's finance minister says Russia is also prepared to sue over how this has played out. This is likely to take a while. Just keep in mind that after Argentina defaulted, negotiations went on for more than a decade. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you, David. Thank you. Next door to Ukraine, Poland has become a key player in Russia's war. As a member of the European Union and NATO, it is a strategic center of gravity for military and humanitarian aid. And it has welcomed Ukrainians who have fled. Yesterday, I sat down with Poland's ambassador to the United States. Marek Magyarovsky said Poland is trying to integrate about 2.7 million refugees as quickly as possible. This outpouring of solidarity and sympathy towards our Ukrainian brethren has been really remarkable. And I'm so proud of my nation. On the other hand, Poland is filling up right now. So mayors of many Polish cities are now in talks with their counterparts and colleagues in Europe and beyond in order to find a solution how to relocate those uh, Ukrainian migrants. Of course, they are still welcome. In Poland, we are ready to take in many more refugees, for example. I mean, I was on the Polish border and I watched so many stream across the border and it was striking to watch women and children, no men. Mostly. And they came in because obviously their men could not come out. A few weeks ago, the Polish parliament passed a law which essentially facilitates the integration of Ukrainian refugees into the Polish society. For example, they can apply for Polish IDs, they can set up their own businesses, they can send their children to Polish schools. By the way, about 180,000 Ukrainian children have already been incorporated into the Polish schooling system. You know, I have to ask you, though, Ambassador, when I was in Poland, it was incredible and heartwarming to watch the way Polish citizens just showed up to help strangers. But a lot of critics look at the policy when it came to Ukrainian refugees and compare it to the policies of a much smaller group of refugees from places like Syria, from places like Afghanistan, where the Polish government decided to build a wall and not allow them to come in. And there was rhetoric like they might bring epidemics with them from the there president. There is a distinct difference between these two migration crises, because in this case, when we are now facing that conflagration in Ukraine, Poland is the first country in which those refugees can seek asylum. Uh, unlike in, in the case of all those Afghan and Syrian and Iraqi refugees who were trying to cross the border with Poland illegally, pushed literally by the Belarusian military. So it was not a migration crisis. It was an artificially created conflict. The reaction of the Polish government was absolutely correct and uh, justifiable. So what do you say to critics that want to paint it as something racial, frankly? It was definitely not. I'd like to remind you that after the Chechen wars in the 90s, we admitted about 60,000 refugees from Chechnya because we came to the conclusion that it was our moral obligation to help those people who were oppressed, again, by the Russian invaders. Now, we've talked a lot about the humanitarian crisis, which Poland is on the front line of, but you're also on the front line of this actual war. Of the military crisis. Of the military crisis, exactly. And some of these strikes have been... 30 miles from the Polish border. How concerned are you about a wider war engulfing Poland and Europe? Of course we are 
pretty much concerned about this ongoing war, I think that we are dealing now with pure evil. And uh, this has always been a very consistent stance of Poland, of the Polish authorities. We know Russia very well. Uh, we had foresight. We have always been trying to alert the world that those near-imperial ambitions of the people who are sitting in the Kremlin are really dangerous to the rest of the world. Ukraine is not the last item on Mr. Putin's menu. But if we have more US and NATO troops on Polish soil, if we have more military equipment, if we are better armed, also as NATO member, the more secure we will feel in the future. What does that look like? being better armed, having more troops? I mean, what are the asks here? We have purchased F-35s, we have purchased the Abrams tanks. Uh, We are arming ourselves because we know very well, we are acutely aware of the fact that in spite of being a member of NATO, we have to be ready to defend ourselves. I don't believe in a major confrontation between NATO and Russia right now. And that's why We have to arm Ukraine. We have to deliver them the most sophisticated weapons. Should they be getting fighter jets? I mean, that was something that over a bunch of diplomatic missteps, it didn't go through. There was a controversy also surrounding our Soviet-made aircraft. They account, those mix that you have just mentioned, account for one-third of our fleet of combat aircraft. We can't deplete our fleet by one-third. It would be absolutely absurd and unacceptable in terms of our defense policy. And that's why we came up with that proposal to put those aircraft at the disposal of NATO. Those are not only Polish aircraft, those are also NATO aircraft. And it should be a unanimous decision and a common effort of all NATO member countries to decide whether Ukrainians should be supplied with these aircraft. So do you agree with the decision so far that these fighter jets have not gone to Ukraine? The proposal is still on the table. Again, we should move on and find the right solutions. How to arm Ukraine in the most effective manner? Because I don't believe in the diplomatic solution of this conflict. I I do believe in a military solution, namely a definitive and total defeat of the Russian army in Ukraine. But how does a military victory come about without also a diplomatic path? Uh, Believe me, that that transfer of military equipment to Ukraine has been massive over the last few weeks. And they are capable, they will be capable of of crushing the Russian army. And if we talk about a hypothetical end of those hostilities, there are some conditions that the international community should set to Russia. They should withdraw all their troops not only from Ukraine proper, but also from those territories annexed and occupied uh, since 2014, from Crimea and from those two eastern republics. They should pay war reparations to Ukraine. Ukraine is now devastated. And, And all those war criminals who have committed unspeakable crimes in Ukraine should be tried and sentenced. And my last question, and you got at this a little bit, but is Poland preparing for war? We are always prepared for war. And, of course, in light of this growing aggressiveness of the Russian Federation and President Putin himself, we need to be even better prepared. On the final note, he wants to win the Cold War, not the new Cold War. He wants to win the Cold War which ended at the beginning of the 90s. I guess that's why I just can't imagine a situation in which Vladimir Putin says, "Okay, I'll accept defeat in the way that this has gone. 
uh, maybe he will not accept defeat, but maybe his society will understand that, that, that that's enough. That's enough. Ambassador, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. This is State of Ukraine. Milton Gavada produced and Catherine Laidlaw edited this episode. I'm Leila Faldin. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.